You're listening to audio from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where we train students to preach the word and reach the world. For more free resources like this one, visit www.swbts.edu forward slash media resources. Isaiah chapter 6. Father, would you grant us this morning the capacity to see you, to meet with you, to experience you through your word, and to go forth and never be the same again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he was flying. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their hearts dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning. Like a terebinth or an oak tree, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. How big is your God. How well do you know Him? How much are you like Him? How ready are you to serve Him? In the 8th century B.C., God called a young 20-something to be a preacher and a prophet. Like so many of you, God called Isaiah. And Isaiah informs us something about his call in this chapter. It's interesting to me that Isaiah puts a chronological notation here, which to some of us may seem unnecessary, or who cares what happened in the 8th century, in the year that King Isaiah died. But you see, for Isaiah and for us, that's really more than a date on a calendar or details of chronology. Because when Isaiah locates this experience in 740 B.C., the year that his king Isaiah died, he is telling us a host of things in that one statement. Uzziah was the greatest king Judah experienced after King Solomon. He reigned a total of 52 years. It's unbelievable, really, when you think about it. It would be the equivalent in our culture of having one president from John F. Kennedy to Barack Obama. All of you in this room under the age of 52 would have never known another 
president. And here was young Isaiah, never known another king than Isaiah. He was especially close to this king, almost a hero to Isaiah was Isaiah. And in the year that King Isaiah died, 740 B.C., Isaiah is telling us something about the culture, the situation around him. He is telling us that in Judah it was a time of prosperity because no one other than Solomon had ruled the way Isaiah did, bringing prosperity to Judah. It was a time of economic prosperity. Isaiah had rebuilt a number of the old cities. He had built the port city down on the Gulf of Aqaba. He had brought in aqueducts and dug wells and built other cities for granaries. He had taken the army and built it to 307,000 elite fighting men. He had subjugated the Philistines toward the Mediterranean Sea, the Ammonites down toward the south, and the Edomites over in the Arabian desert. It was a time of prosperity, but it was a time of uncertainty because to the north, the Assyrian Empire had come to power. And just five years prior to this date, Tiglath-Pileser III had come to power and he was ruthless and vicious and he was rattling his saber toward the northern kingdom, Israel, as well as toward Judah. And there was fear and uncertainty about the future. What will happen? Will we be invaded? And now that's complicated by the death of their great king, Uzziah. It was a time of uncertainty. It was a time of superficiality, religious superficiality. Oh, the people would come to the temple on the Sabbath, and there they were during the days of the week, and they would come to the temple, and the temple sacrifices were ongoing, and all the ritual and formalism, it was all happening. But behind the scenes, for those who could peel back the veneer, after the people would come, many of them, to worship on Sabbath, during days of the week, they would slip off to the high places left over from the old Canaanite paganism of past days that Solomon failed to fully destroy. In fact, he erected some of them for his pagan wives. And then all of the kings of Judah and Israel, all the good ones as well as the bad ones, certainly failed to destroy the high places. And there was a superficial religion and people were stealing off to worship at the high places. They were committing the great sin against their God of idolatry. It was a time of prosperity. It was a time of uncertainty. It was a time of superficiality. And just like they place at the end of a movie in the trailer, when you see it, those words that any comparison of the fictional characters and places, people and so forth in this movie to people who are alive today is purely coincidental. So any comparison that you might read in this to United States of America culture today is, of course, purely coincidental. In the year that King Uzziah died, it would be like saying something in our culture, in the year that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, I saw the Lord. In the year that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, I saw the Lord. In the year that terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center, I saw the Lord. This, was what, this is what Isaiah is conveying to us. In those days, Isaiah, along with his nation... A tsunami of grief swept across his soul, the flag of the nation flying at half-mast. Their great king is gone. Fifty-two years, and now he's gone. And Isaiah had fixated on an empty throne. I can imagine it, can't you? He goes to that palace, he peers through those doors, and he sees an empty throne. He walks down to the cemetery, and the stone-cold slab brings no more heat to his cold heart. And finally, Isaiah, I can imagine, goes to the temple. He makes his way up those stairs to worship at the temple. Throngs of people are all around him as he's making his way there. But suddenly, something happened that marked Isaiah's ministry for the rest of his life. 
the walls began to recede. And instead of the antiphonal singing of the Levitical priests, Isaiah hears the antiphonal singing of the heavenly hosts. Instead of the smoke of the incense, the altar of incense in the holy place, Isaiah sees the smoke of God's holiness in his heavenly temple. Instead of angels carved over the Ark of the Covenant, Isaiah sees angelic beings, seraphim, fluttering over the throne of God. Instead of an empty throne, Isaiah sees an occupied throne. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Earthly power goes from hand to hand. King Charles I, King Charles II, King Henry I, King Henry II, King Henry VIII, King Louis I, King Louis II, King Louis XIV. But have you noticed in the Bible, never do you read about God the first who then becomes decrepit and passes away and we have to get another God, God the second, and then he ages and dies and we get God the third. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that's not how it works? There's God the first, God the last, God the only. He is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the eternal one, the king of kings and lord of lords who reigns forever upon the throne. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God Isaiah saw. He has one telescope through which he views all things, his omniscience. He has one bridge by which he crosses all things, his omnipresence. He has one hammer by which he breaks all things, his omnipotence. He is God, the Lord, the King of the universe. This is the one Isaiah saw. The year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord seating upon, seating upon a throne. He's sitting on a lofty and an exalted throne, Isaiah says. And furthermore, he says that the train of his robe, just the hem of his garment, filled the temple. The earthly temple in Jerusalem was a magnificent edifice. It was unbelievable. It was huge. And now we're talking about that heavenly counterpart, as it were, in Isaiah and his vision. In whatever way God revealed himself to him, we're not told specifically, but we are told that he did. And in that revelation of himself, Isaiah says that the majesty of God was such that just the fringe of his robe alone, not his robe, not himself, just the little fringe, it filled all of the temple. Unbelievable majesty. Verse 2, Isaiah says, Seraphim stood above him. This is the only place in Scripture where you read about this angelic order of beings, seraphim, dragon-like creatures with wings, seraphim, literally in Hebrew, the burning ones, the fiery ones. Fire is always or usually a symbol, oftentimes a symbol of the holiness of God. Ask Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when the bush was burning but was not consumed and the Lord said, take your shoes off your feet. Seraphim stand above him, each having six wings. Does that appear a bit redundant to you? After all, it only takes two, right? But these have six, six wings with two covering their face, two covering their feet, two they are flying. What in the world does that mean? Well, the face, the center of intellectual apprehension and in the presence of the king of this universe who is himself omniscient and the only one who is, they veil their faces with feathery pinions in the presence of he who is the one who knows all. Feet are oftentimes symbolic of governmental authority. Here they are veiling their feet in the presence of the supreme ruler of the universe. 
these wonderful creatures, amazing though they are, seraphs, these burning ones, these seraphim, yet they are veiling their feet in humble submission. And then with two of those wings, they are flying. And the the implication is they are back and forth and they are flying as need be, ready to do the bidding of the will of him, of him who sits, he who sits upon that throne. And so here we have the apex, the, the, the top of worship. Here we have obedience, activity in obedience to ready to do the will of the one who sits on the throne. And that is a lesson to us today about what true worship entails and involves. Verse 3, and one called out to another, something of maybe an antiphonal calling. One called out to another and said, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's interesting to me that they do not cry out, justice, 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 is God. Mercy, mercy, mercy is the Lord. Love, love, love is the Lord. But no, they call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's no problem you have, no problem your church has, no problem this country has, and no problem this world has that could not be solved by fresh vision of the holiness of God. The great need in your life, in my life, in your church, in our seminary, and in all of the world is to see our holy God. Holy, holy, holy. The little markings that the Masoretes placed under those words, those little diacritical markings different under each word, probably indicate that as they were being spoken, there was a crescendo, Dr. Day. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That word holy. Root meaning. Separate. Unique. Unlike any other. Special. Altogether above and beyond all of the created order. It is a word that describes also moral purity. Not one scintilla of sin marking the character of God. He is altogether perfect. He is altogether set apart from you and me. He is altogether holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. This vision marked the ministry of Isaiah for the rest of his days. In this book alone, Isaiah, 26 times. When Isaiah talks about God, he refers to him as the Holy One of Israel. Of all of the adjectives put together in the Old Testament with the name of God, holy outnumbers the totality of them all. More than anything, God is revealed in the Old Testament as holy. God is holy. And you're not. And I'm not. And Isaiah wasn't. Holy, holy, holy is a description of the transcendence of God, if you want to put it in theological terms. He is above and beyond His creation and those He has created. He is a God who is transcendent. He is altogether holy. But look at the next statement. The whole earth is full of His kavod, His glory. God is not only transcendent, He is also imminent. It's His world. He hasn't abandoned it. And here we're told the whole earth and everything about it is full of the glory of God. The word glory, the concept of glory, the Hebrew word kavod. The root of that word means to be heavy. It means to be weighty. 
God is the heaviest thing in the universe. He is the most real. Everything else is virtual reality, but God is ultimate reality. And He is glorious, and His glory is His manifestation of His holiness. Whenever you see the glory of God, it's the manifest presence of God and the amount that God will allow you and I to see as He reveals Himself to us. In fact, if God were to reveal Himself to you and me in His pure holiness, as the Scripture says, no one can see God and live, apart from the shielding grace that we sang about of Jesus a moment ago, if God were to reveal himself to you in his holiness, it would be like detonating a 100 megaton atomic bomb 100 feet above your head in a millisecond. You'd be annihilated by his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole is full of his glory. A statement about his transcendence, a statement about his eminence, a statement about his omnipresence, the whole earth full of his glory. If God moved, he'd bump into himself. He's everywhere. It's a statement about his providence. The whole earth is under his control. Make no mistake, Isaiah saw an empty throne and he was worried, sick about it. But what Isaiah needed is the same thing you and I need today more than anything. We need to look beyond our country, look beyond our nation, beyond our world, beyond all of the problems, and through the heavens to the heaven of heavens. And there we need a fresh vision of God himself who sits upon that throne. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when the Seraph, call that out to another seraph. Verse 4 says that the base of his voice was such that the foundations of the thresholds trembled. Can you imagine if we took this organ and turned up that bass and played it at a certain volume, the very foundations of this magnificent building would be shaken, but that would be a drop in the bucket to what one seraph could do with his voice when he called out the trees Hagion, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah not only hears that, he feels the trembling, the thresholds trembling at the voice of him who calls out. And not only that, he saw and he smelled the smoke that was filling that heavenly temple. Like that earthly holy place, the smoke of the, from the altar of incense would fill and permeate that room and waft out across that veil out into that outer area and across that inner veil into the Holy of Holies, a place where Isaiah could never go and never see. And yet here the place is filling with smoke. Smoke is a symbol oftentimes of the very presence of God. When the temple of Solomon was dedicated, the preachers couldn't even get in. The priests couldn't get in because the God, God himself, as he filled that building, the building was filled with smoke. The presence of God, the glory of God was such they couldn't even get into the building. What would happen in churches today if God showed up in such a way that none of us could even get in? That's what we need. Then, verse 5, Isaiah speaks. The linguistic structure of chapter 6 is built around three statements that Isaiah makes when he says, Then I said. You can see it clearly in the Hebrew. Verse 5, verse 8, and verse 11. Now, here is Isaiah. He's seen God. He's in the presence of God. And so what does he say? Then I said, wow, wow, let's get the praise band going, baby, and let's rock it out. Wow, let's boogie down spiritually. Wow, we've seen God. Let's worship, baby. Let's go for it. Wow. Is that what Isaiah does? Is that what Isaiah says? No. 
What does Isaiah do? He falls on his face in the presence of a holy God. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone. Woe is me. Here's one of the best men of his day. A young preacher, either in seminary or fresh out of seminary. He loves God. He wants to preach the Word of God. He's been given a fresh vision, a vision of his holy God whom he loves and whom he wants to preach. And the Word of that God he wants to preach. And he comes directly encountering that God by revelation that that God has given to him. And what does Isaiah do? One of the best men of his day falls on his face. And he says, woe is me. I am undone. Focus on that word undone with me. Do you see it? I am undone. Nifal in Hebrew. I am undone. It's an interesting Hebrew word. And what Isaiah is saying in so many words is this. I am coming unraveled at the seams in the presence of my holy God. Luther, in his German edition of the Bible, translates this, I am dissolved. It's a word that means, I'm a dead duck, I'm a goner, I'm... I have no place to go. I'm about to die. That's what it means. Isaiah fully expected to be annihilated in the presence of his holy God. I am undone. That's the proper attitude when you come in contact with a holy God. And there is no other. That precedes all others. Now listen to me carefully. God wants you to experience His wow. But you cannot have the wow until you have the woe. You cannot experience the wow of redemption and salvation and worship until you experience the woe of repentance of your own sinfulness. Woe is me. God wants you to have the wow of worship. But you can't get to that wow until you go through the woe. I digress for a moment. I'll make a quick application. Let me tell you one of the things that's wrong with the evangelical church today, evangelical churches. They're all about the wow, and they've forgotten the woe. I see it in her music. I see it in her prayers. And I see it in her preaching. You cannot have the wow. God wants you to have it, but you just can't have it apart from the woe. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm coming unraveled at the seams. One of the root words of one of the root meanings behind this word that's used here is the word that means the concept of to be silenced. And it's the picture of Isaiah. And it would be the picture of you or me if we were in a situation where right in front of our very eyes a sudden tragedy occurred. Planes flown by terrorists flying into the World Trade Center. Had you been there that day, had you seen that actual occurrence, then it takes your breath away and your silence. You see it occurring. And you're silenced. And you can't speak. And your breath is taken away. Isaiah 
is silenced. What are you going to say to a God like this? I'll do better next time. Isaiah fully expects to be annihilated. And so he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. There's no deep sense of sin without a clear vision of God. Isaiah now has a deep sense of sin because he has a clear vision of God. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. (laughs) Interesting. He doesn't say I've got an unclean heart. He could have said that. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why did he say that? That's really an idiomatic expression that indicates the totality of your being. Isaiah says, I'm really dirty in the presence of a holy God. And he talks about his lips. Jesus talked about how from the heart, out of the deep recesses of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the lips indicate what's in the heart. And Isaiah is just taking making a statement that all, all of himself, all of me, I am unclean. I live among people of unclean. My people are unclean. I know this and I sense my uncleanness for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah's pride is brought to the dust. The one thing that keeps you and me as believers, now I'm talking to Christians, from being effectively used by the Lord is the fact that we're not looking at Him as closely as we should be and the pride of our lives hinders us from being what God wants us to be. Pride goes before a fall. Pride brought down Adam and Eve. Pride brought down Satan. More priests, high priests, Prophets and kings were brought down in the Old Testament because of their pride. God said there are seven things that I hate. Number one on his list is a proud look. Pride is the poison that always sits inconspicuously on the shelf of your life. It's the the worm of pride is ever threatening to eat into the fruit of the Spirit in your life. The interesting thing about pride is it dogs your footsteps 24-7. It doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter what your position is or isn't, pride goes with you. It leaves with you every morning when you leave your home. You come to school, it comes with you. You go to work, it follows you. You come to church, it kneels beside you when you pray. It whispers in your ear when you preach. This is pride. Pride. Even the donkey that brought Jesus into Jerusalem knew that the applause was not for him. Isaiah's pride is laid in the dust. He's waiting to be annihilated. But look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with the takerators. Hebrew word tong there is just built off of the verb to take. And so he uses the takerators, those things you take those coals off the altar, altar with, to bring one of those live burning coals to Isaiah's lips. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. Which altar? There were two, you know. There was the altar of incense in the holy place. And there was the altar burnt offering in the courtyard where the sacrifices are made. Which altar? Isaiah doesn't say. We don't know. 
But it doesn't matter which one, because whether it is the altar of incense, which the author of Hebrews says in that holy place pertains unto the holy of holies and atonement, or whether it is the altar burnt offering where the sacrifices were brought, which also clearly pertains to atonement. Either way, this is an act of sacrifice and atonement, which is the grounding and the foundation of the forgiveness that Isaiah receives from, the, from God himself. And I want you to notice carefully, from the altar, verse 7, he touched my mouth with it and said, looky here, the word behold in Hebrew I like to translate a little colloquially from my southern background in Georgia so that when the long-lost uncle whom you don't expect shows up at the family reunion or whatever and you open the door and there he is, it's total surprise, total shock. You don't expect it. And in Georgia we say, well, looky here. And Isaiah is fully expecting to be annihilated, but the seraph comes with a burning coal and he's about to experience forgiveness. So the seraph prefaces it and he says, Isaiah, looky here what's about to occur. And so we read, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Isaiah is recoiling. He's expecting that burning coal touching his lips. He's expecting to experience searing pain, which would be the normal thing that would occur. But instead, no, he feels total relief and release as God's forgiveness is ministered to him. Look at this, your iniquity, the word iniquity is a word that describes the internal nature of your sin, the actual nature of your sin, what your sin is in terms of its nature. And so your iniquity, and it's a foul word, and it says your iniquity is taken away, and then your sin, there's the specific act of your sin. Your iniquity, your guilt, your acts of sin, it's all forgiven. It's all forgiven. And it's done so on the basis of atonement. Look at the last word. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is literally that most powerful word in the Hebrew Old Testament to describe atonement. It's the word to cover. Literally, your sin is covered. The day of atonement in Hebrew is the day of covering. It is the sacrifice that covers sin. Hear me when I say all true relationship with God and all true worship with God is based on sacrifice. No one comes into the presence of a holy God apart from the sacrifice of his son Jesus. No one can worship until they come to the Father through the Son and give Him the glory, great things He has done. And notice also in this act of atonement, this act of redemption, did you notice that Isaiah didn't initiate it? Did you notice that Isaiah didn't start the process? No, Isaiah is relatively passive and it's God who comes to Isaiah. It's God upon Isaiah's repentance. It's God who comes. It's God who provides. It's God who forgives. It's God who initiates atonement and salvation. It's all of God. It's none of you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is covered. If after this service today at lunchtime, because I'm grateful to Dr. Owens for what he did, his kind introduction, I say, let's go to eat. I'll buy you lunch. And I'll buy you a steak dinner. We go out to Saltgrass. And we get to the end of the, of the meal, and I reach into my billfold, to pay for the meal, and I realized that I gave my wife my credit card, and I gave my daughter my other credit card, and I gave my other daughter all the cash I had that day, and I have absolutely nothing on me to pay for the meal. And I'm embarrassed, and I'm humiliated. <laughs> and I say, Brother Dean, I am so sorry. I can't pay for your meal today. And he reaches into his, being the gracious man he is, he reaches into his bill phone, and he says, hey, don't worry about it, David. I've got you covered. 
That's what God is telling Isaiah on the basis of atonement, Isaiah. Otherwise, you're a dead duck. But son, I've got you covered. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Isaiah learns that through atonement and God's grace and God's mercy and God's love, Isaiah learns, God says to him, I've got you covered, boy. I've got you covered. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Whom shall I, singular send, who will go for us? Wonder what that means. Could there be Trinitarian revelation in the Old Testament? Hold the phone on that one. Then I said, here comes the second then I said. Then I said, literally in Hebrew, Behold me, send me. It's only two words in Hebrew. It's five in English, but it's only two in Hebrew. When you've been to the throne of a holy God and you've now gotten yourself cleaned up, you don't need to jabber with God. Yes. And so Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. You need someone, Lord, send me. Before he knows what the assignment is, he says, send me. Are you willing to go where God will send you before you know where he will send you? Isaiah was. And you see, you see, the bottom line is when you come in contact with this holy God, when you have this kind of vision with God, it doesn't matter where this God will send you. It doesn't matter what circumstances you're going to find yourself in. It matters not from that day forward what's going to happen to you, whether you live or die. You can handle it because you've seen God. And you have lighted your torch at the throne of God himself. And so Isaiah says, behold me, send me. Almost every sermon on Isaiah 6 ends right there. I have a hundred different sermons in my library from sermon books on Isaiah 6, a hundred. I've read about 65 of them. I've looked at the index on all of them. Out of those hundred sermons throughout church history that I have, only two of the hundred go beyond verse 8. But this is why we believe in text-driven preaching. You cannot understand the full meaning of 1 through 8 without understanding what is stated in 9 through 13, and I'm well aware of the clock. But I'm going to ask you for about seven more minutes of your careful thinking as we are doing business with a holy God. And so verse 9 says, God said, Here am I, send me. And God said, go and preach and look at the revival I'm going to bring. You're going to be the first Billy Graham. Millions are going to be converted. The nation is going to be saved. Is that what it says? Nope, not on your life. God says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and actually return and be healed. God tells Isaiah what his ministry is going to be like. And he's telling him that his ministry among the people will be a ministry of resistance. It will not be revival. It will be resistance. The vast majority of the people, of your own people, Isaiah, you're going to preach for the next two or three dozen years until destruction comes, and most of them are not going to listen. Few are going to walk the aisle, Isaiah. Most people will harden their hearts. And so God prepares Isaiah by giving him here a divine vaccination. This is what God is doing. By telling Isaiah what's coming, he's giving him a divine vaccination against any disappointment and disillusionment down the road when he experiences this. And you see, by virtue of the fact that God has revealed himself to Isaiah, and Isaiah has seen God, this marks him for the rest of his life. And so now Isaiah is prepared for any ministry, whether it is a ministry in the bay window or the basement. It doesn't matter because he's seen God. 
And the same is true for you. If you will see your God as you ought to see him. So yes, they're going to keep on listening, but not perceive. Looking, but not understand. Render the hearts of this people, verse 10. Look at it. Insensitive, ears dull, eyes dim. And now look at the reverse. Otherwise, with their eyes, they may see. Hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. Look at the, the chiastic symmetry that's expressed there to drive home the point. That they're not going to listen. Render the hearts of this people literally fat in Hebrew. The correct translation, insensitive. Their ears dull, literally heavy in Hebrew. It's a form of the word kavod earlier. The glory of God's in the whole earth, but the ears of the people in Judah are so stopped up that they can't hear, and their eyes are so blind that they can't even see the glory of God. It's the way it is with lots of churches today. Lots of people at churches today. So resistance. Verse 11, resistance gives way to ruin. Then I said, here's the third, then I said statement, Lord, how long? That's Isaiahic shorthand for Lord, what's going to be the end of this? When is this, how's this going to lay out? And God answered. Until the cities are devastated without inhabitant, houses without people, the land's utterly desolate, lords removed men far away, forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, if he were speaking to us here in Fort Worth today, and Isaiah were preaching to us today, and we are the recalcitrant people to whom he is speaking, and we say, Isaiah, what's going to be the end of this? When is all this going to be about? And Isaiah says, you see that student village over there? You see those children playing on the ground? You see your own family there? They're going to swoop in. Your family, some of you, entire families will be wiped out. Others of you, husbands will die. Wives will live. Some will be taken away into captivity. Some of your children will die. Maybe all of them. Others taken away into captivity. That's what you've got to look forward to, Southwestern Seminary, because of your resistance and your recalcitrance and your idolatry and your unwillingness to bow the knee before a holy God. God saying to Isaiah, to his, to Isaiah and the people of Judah, I've given you time, 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 time time to repent. Hundreds of two or three hundred years have gone by. Repent, repent, repent. There is no repentance. The people continue to disobey. And finally, God opposes his own word with his word. When God's word says, you're going to preach my word, but they're going to resist my word. And I'm even involved in that resistance because the more you harden your heart, then the more you disobey God and refuse to listen to him, your heart becomes hardened. And the more you harden your heart, God may come to the place where he says, fine, your heart's hardened. And this is what will happen. God actually in this passage opposes his word with his own word. Pause, Selah, pause and think on that for a while. Until lands are desolate, houses gone, families destroyed. Verse 11, yet there will be a tenth portion in it. Oh, a remnant. But then even it will be subject to burning. It'll be tested, tried. Isaiah had a son. Did you know that? He named his son Shear Jasob, which literally means a remnant shall return. And so always, hear me, hear me, always on the garment of judgment, the fringe on the garment of judgment is the fringe of hope. God is about something. God is doing something. There's a purpose in this ruin, but there is going to be redemption. Yet there'll be a tent. It'll be subject to burning like that terebinth tree, that oak tree whose stump remains when it is felled. But here comes the redemption. It's the last sentence in the chapter. The holy seed is its stump. Oh, the holy seed. I wonder what that refers to. Well, first it's a reference to the remnant who will not bow their knee to Baal. 
But secondly, it's clearly a reference if you read the rest of Isaiah and you put New Testament glasses on and you read the New Testament, that is a reference to the little shoot that grows from the stump where the tree has been felled and the stump has been burned. So Isaiah later in 11.1 says, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from its root that will bear fruit. And then the rest of the next several verses indicate that is a messianic statement about the Messiah whom is, who is God himself. You and I know through New Testament glasses that is Jesus. And so Isaiah takes us to Jesus. He does so at the very end. Is there resistance? Yes. Is there ruin? Yes. But is there redemption? Oh, yes, there is. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince, the Tsar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 53. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the righteous servant, the suffering servant, who when you put New Testament glasses on and read Luke chapter 22, and you see Jesus there in the upper room in the only one of the four Gospels where Jesus quotes Isaiah 53 and applies it to himself. And Jesus says, there I am, I'm that suffering servant. And so we see through New Testament glasses that this is what God is about. He's ultimately not about judgment. He's about redemption. He is holy and he'll judge. But also he is holy and thus he loves and he redeems. And he has sent a savior to pay the sin for the sins, to die on the cross for the sins of every human being on on the planet. And every person is savable because there is a sacrifice and atonement made for their sin. And if they will repent of that sin and meet God's condition of salvation, repentance and faith, God will save them on the basis of atonement. And so go forth whether they listen or not and preach. Go forth whether they laugh or not and preach. Go forth whether they persecute or not and preach. A crucified, risen, and exalted Savior whose name is Jesus. And understand that what Isaiah is saying to us is that only when you see God as he reveals himself to you are you ever prepared to go preach his word faithfully to others. So light your torch at the throne of God and it will never burn out. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you want more information on our academic programs, or if you would like to support our mission, visit www.swbts.edu.